Welcome to New Street X, a podcast where we talk to the most interesting people in the collectible space across sneakers, sports, trading cards, NFTs, fashion, art, and more. And today we have Matt Powell from the NPD Group. Matt is one of the world's leading analysts on sneakers, sports, and retail with over 40 years of experience and tens of thousands of followers across Twitter and LinkedIn. In this podcast, we talked about topics ranging from how Air Jordan generated sneaker demand, the history of drop culture, the value of Travis Scott collapse, Kanye West's Yeezy brand, sustainable fashion, resellers and sneaker bots, the purpose of sneaker apps, NFTs, and much more. This episode will teach you a lot about the global sneaker industry. Listen now. Great. Well, thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Oh, for sure. Now, maybe we could take a step back. I just love to learn more about your background, where you're from, how sneakers became part of your life and how footwear became part of your life. But even before that, maybe your, your origin story. To go back to college. I was a sociology major in college and always, always interested in what made groups of people do what they do. My dad was in retail. I started in retail at an early age. I joined a department store's executive training program when I got out of college, and I worked for one company for 20 years, which is completely unheard of in today's world. There was the major consolidation of the department store businesses in the in the early 90s, and m- m- many of us got to find something new to do. So I ended up working for a large sporting goods retailer. I worked for a sneaker stadium in New Jersey, which was a sneaker superstore. We carried 1,500 styles of sneakers. Don't recommend that people do that. Yeah. I uh, worked for Models. Probably the second coolest job I had after this one was I worked for a company called MVP.com that was started by John Elway, Michael Jordan, and Wayne Gretzky. And I got to meet those wow. guys and work with them. And that was an interesting tenure. And I, if, you don't, if you don't mind asking, well, I guess I got two quick questions here. One, were you like self-professed sneakerhead growing up or did you just kind of fall into it? And, and two, what, what was it like working with these, these celebs? Because, you know, we're going to talk about later about the role a celebrity or athlete can play. I'd love to know a bit more about what it was like working with John Elway, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky. Sure. Well, so uh, the the first part, first question, you know, uh, my, my retail career, I spent most of my time in men's sportswear. I was very focused on what we called in the industry then young men's or teen, teen in college uh, males and what they wore. And so there was always an interest, I guess, in that age group and their and their purchasing behavior. Um, not a sneakerhead, don't collect, but I was, was always involved in sort of teen, teen retail and, and uh, that made an an obvious entry into uh, into the sneaker business. Elway was very involved with MVP.com. It was his idea originally, and we saw a lot of him. And very smart businessman, very down to earth, really really great guy. Gretzky was had a very small investment in it and was sort of on the periphery of things, but not really involved at all. We would see him for like board meetings and and that kind of thing. Jordan was an interesting one. We were based in Chicago, so it made it even more interesting to have him involved. And whenever he visited, when we had a meeting with him there had to be massive security basically we locked down the building and nobody could go in or out we weren't allowed to shake his hand unless he offered to shake our hands we weren't allowed, certainly were never allowed to ask for an autograph none of the fan stuff if you will and so it was he, having him around was sort of surreal because there was sort of he was such an icon in Chicago and but a very a very personal man and a smart businessman and asked asked really good questions and again not nearly as involved as Elway was but but certainly more involved than and this was uh, if MVP 
Zippy.com. It was this like an e-commerce venture back in the, yeah, in the, the day? Yeah, the idea, it was Elway's idea that he was going to get the best athlete in every sport. And of course, he included himself on that list. Um, Interesting. But that's <laughs> all right. We'll, 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 we'll give him that. And yeah. uh, the athletes would come in and not, not try to sell the products that they were paid to endorse, but rather teach kids how to play the game better. And so one of the first videos we did was Elway on how to throw a spiral. He used a Wilson football, which he was endorsing, but it wasn't about Wilson. It was about how to throw a spiral. We did a series of videos that are actually still up on YouTube of Michael Jordan playing basketball versus uh, a woman who worked for us in the customer service area who had been a D3 college player, a competent uh, basketball player, and he demonstrated all kinds of, you know, pick and roll, pass, uh, crossover dribble, proper positioning for defense and so forth. And those videos, as I say, are still up on uh, on YouTube. So that was really fun. And, and that was Elway's idea was to for the athletes to give something back to the community, yeah. to kids, and by helping them play better, enjoy the sport better, that they would consequently buy more products. I think it was Steve Jobs who said education is the best form of marketing and yes. to your sort of interest in like consumer behavior. Isn't that how like Chuck Taylor famously became this great salesperson where he, sure. he went yeah. around teaching people, he would go to schools around the US, teach them how to play basketball, then sell them Converse. Look, you go all the way up. I mean, Larry Bird wore Converse in high school and college. He wore Chuck Taylor's when he was in high school and college. And when he got to the pros, he wore other Converse shoes. So, so uh, I mean, that's the legacy of that product. It's still hands down the biggest selling unit sneaker in the history of the business. No no, uh, no product will ever sell more pairs than Chuck Taylor sells. That, that will never be, that record will never be. I don't think it will ever be beaten, no. Okay, no. interesting. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of ambitious sneaker executives around the world right now trying to hopefully, hopefully prove you wrong. That's really fascinating about MVP because it also reminds me of, not sure how, how deep you are in like the NFT space, but just a quick aside here. So Tom Brady just set up this company, Autograph, which is like this NFT marketplace. And he's got Naomi Osaka, Tiger Woods, Wayne Gretzky, and Tony Hawk. It's, they kind of form this like advisory board. Very blatantly, it's a similar strategy as Elway's, right? Where it's like, let's get all stars, rock stars, the best of American sports, and then that's an intrinsic marketing strategy. NFT is just another version of collectible items, right? Totally. And so uh, unfortunately, uh, there, there's this whole piece of the NFT moment that is just about the fact that it's rare. And the, pro the product itself has zero intrinsic value. But simply because it's rare and it can be proven that it's rare is, is where the value comes in. And I, I don't think that's a sustainable business model. But if you've got athletes who are endorsing the product, maybe uh, you know doing some sort of digital autograph on it, I think that does add value to it. So, um, you know, the collectibles market has gotten crazier and crazier over the years and, and, and now selling all these subparts of, you know, like with the Wilt Chamberlain uh, jersey yesterday. It's, again, the business just gets nuttier by the minute. I would tell you that I, don't, I think a lot of NFT is simply not sustainable. I, it's, a, it's, it's a positive. Really <laughs> Completely agree. Now, sorry, I didn't mean to derail your, your life story, That's by right. the way, because I'd love to go deeper into NFTs a little bit later. But maybe so just to maybe bring things back. So you're working at MVP and then that led you to your next opportunity at the time. Is that what happened? Yeah. So we we launched the MVP site um, the day the dot com bubble burst, basically. Gosh, so, okay. Uh, and we spent the rest of the year sort of winding it down. I mean, it was clear we the, the money people behind us insisted we spend something like twenty five million dollars in one, the first year in marketing, and we did thirty five million dollars in sales. So you you don't have to be a, a genius here to do the math that, that that certainly is not a sustainable model. So uh, and 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 again, the the dot com business looked like it was going to go like this, and then started to go like that, and everybody who had invested as if 
if it was going to go to the moon. And, and so the, there was no more money to be put in, and, and basically we had to wind it down. I had met a couple of hedge fund managers when I was at my stop at uh, Sport Mart at the Sporting Goods, a big box retailer. I decided I wanted to try to consult. They came to me and said, if you want, we'll pay you to do research for us. And so 21 years later, I'm still doing research. Totally backed into this. I'm going to give a little advice to some of your listeners who are probably thinking about careers and so forth. Your, your first job does not matter. What matters is your last job. And I have the best last job I possibly could have. But too often I talk to college students, even high school students, who are obsessed with the first job. It has to be the perfect first job. I asked a group of, of uh, college students the other day, I said, how many of you were in love in the ninth grade? And they all raised their hand. And how many of you married the person you were in love with in the ninth grade? And nobody, everybody took their hand down, right? So it's obsessing about that first job is like obsessing about your first love. It's probably not going to work out the way you planned it. <laughs> Um, and, and look, what, what I do now, I didn't even exist when I was in college. There was yeah. no way I could have aspired to this job. So, so where are you spending your time? Like, what's your day-to-day? -day? Like, is it a mixture of, I guess, like Yeah, so I, um, my role is really, I'm the senior industry advisor for sports, as you said, and my role really is to be the face of the data to the media, to the stock market, to the brands, to the retailers. And I spend my day talking to all of those groups in, in various ways. I do formal presentations to retailers and brands. I talked to major uh, major retailer last week, a major, major two or three major brands last week. I figure over the last 12 months, I did something like 125 presentations. So I'm on Zoom all day long. Average probably two press calls a day. Uh, not all of those stories end up in the paper. Sometimes the journalist thesis about a topic is not supported by yeah. fact. So sometimes those stories don't end up there. But I talk to the press a lot. I don't talk to the stock market nearly as much in my, my earlier life. I talked to the stock market all the time. Uh, and, uh, and now that's kind of wound down. I do a fair amount of mentoring within the organization, helping young people who want to move up. I took a call yesterday from a, one of our newer, newer uh, executives who wanted to talk about career path. And then I took a call from a woman who was just networking and wanted to, wanted to sort of know about the sports industry. I'm on social media a lot, probably more than I ought to Twitter. be. Twitter a bit, yes, um, like 24-7. Um, <laughs> I've got 25,000 LinkedIn connections, and I'm in, in communication with those folks a lot too. So my day usually starts about five and I jump on the screen first thing and stay on until six and uh, night. And one of the things that one of my rules is at six, it's over. I'm done, finished. I shut it off and walk away. I don't look at my phone. I don't look at my laptop. I just, uh, I, I leave it because I, th I think 13 hours a day is plenty. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you might be the, the perfect person in the world to, to give us like a rundown of, of the, the sneaker industry right now. I was just looking at some of your recent tweets. It's at a macro level, like what's your current take on the footwear industry? Yeah, so it's it's up until the pandemic, we were running about a 4% kegger every year. You could pretty much set your watch by it. Sometimes it was two, sometimes it was six, but it, it, we pretty much settled in around 4% 4 increase against the previous year. Under COVID, the, the non-essential businesses like footwear and apparel cratered. Sales last yeah. year were down about 7% in athletic footwear in 2020 versus 2019. Um, and we've had a nice comeback this year versus uh, both 20 and, and 2020 and 2019. Part of that's being driven by stimulus. Part of that's being driven by, gee, I didn't buy a new pair of shoes for a year because I didn't need to wear shoes for a year, yeah. um, work from home, right? And by the way, during the pandemic, the slipper business was fabulous. The sports slide business yeah. was fabulous because that's what people it's, were it's wearing like, at home. You're not did, going out. Did Crocs right? do really well? Right? Crocs it, do very, Crocs very well. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, anything, anything that you could tie back to comfort during the pandemic yeah. did well. So people wanted to feel safe and cozy. And NPD covers about 20 different industries. So automotive, yeah. beauty, food, tech, fashion, sports. And we, there were really common themes were things that you did for your house. Small appliances, uh, new 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 camera for your Zoom calls. Those businesses did great. The things that that you would normally say, oh, "Well, I'm going out or I'm going to work," like shoes and, and shirts, you didn't need. So uh, that business was terrible. And though and it's kind of reversed itself now a little bit as we begin to emerge from this. So specifically on footwear, what's been good? You point out, sport lifestyle side has been great. <laughs> That's really being driven much by by retro product. The retro trend is still very much alive and well. I think consumers are looking to return to a time when things were safer and less contentious and simpler. So retro takes us back to that. And we're seeing retro everything right now. I mean, retro cereal, retro movies and TV shows, as well as retro footwear and clothing. Yeah. Um, that's the largest category in, in athletic footwear in the U.S. Uh, and still growing nicely. The running business, the performance running business, shoes you really run in, has has really rebounded uh, during the pandemic, since the pandemic is over. One of the positives that we see coming out of the pandemic is that we think, number one, people are going to be more concerned about healthy living, staying fit than they were beforehand. When we look at the casualties of the pandemic, so many of those people had pre-existing conditions. They were overweight, they were smokers, they were diabetics and so forth. And so I think there's a, a real push to get fit. And at the same time, I, the the social distancing that rose during the pandemic, I, we think has continued as well. And so people are seeking activities where I can stay fit and stay socially distant. Running is one of those categories. And so the running people who actually run numbers are way up and running shoe sales have been way up. Some of the smaller categories that are working really well, golf and tennis, again, two, two sports you can stay fit and stay relatively socially distant. The hiking business has been really good. The walking shoe business has been really good as a corollary to, I think, what's happening in running. The, those are those are probably the major bright spots right now. So those are like the growth engines of the overall industry. Now, I'd, I'd love to know what are, what are the other growth stories that could happen for footwear? And, and the reason I bring it up is because I remember I had a friend of mine from Facebook used to manage the relationship with Adidas globally, but he was telling me that he used to, you know, obviously do a lot of work with Adidas marketing execs at the highest level. One of the things they told him was that the biggest growth opportunity for Adidas is increasing the number of shoes like men own, because from my understanding, women own on average more shoes than men. Men, even though it seems like, you know, sneakerheads are becoming a thing, on average, the average men don't own that many shoes. So if you can increase just that number by I don't know, one or two, that's like billions of dollars in growth for a company like Adidas. Uh, yeah, I that think sense that's when you look at the broader shoe market, uh, men and women represent roughly the same percentage. But when you look at athletic, men have a gr much greater percentage of the athletic market than women do. And and it's also right to point out that men purchase fewer pairs for, of shoes per yeah. year than women do. And so if you could get them to buy another pair, that's a good thing. But the biggest opportunity in athletic footwear is women. Um, and the women's piece of the business should be equal to the men's piece of the business. And we are, we are billions of dollars away from that. And the women's business has been good since the, as we began to emerge from the pandemic. It was good before the pandemic. And, and I'm, I'm optimistic that that, that that will continue to grow. And we're seeing more and more brands really focused on women's footwear. Before the industry used to used to essentially just size down a man's shoe and color it a different way and call, and call it a women's shoe. Now many of the brands, uh, even though the shoe may have the same, name the uh, you know the air tony they're but they're making for both uh, but the women's shoe was actually made on a separate lasting system which is the mold of whether they make around the shoe because a woman's foot 
anatomically is shaped differently than a man's foot. Girl, girls are different than boys. This is one of the really important learnings that I've come with with 20 years of research. Yeah. And, what's, the, what's, the, what's the percentage breakdown like of athletic footwear yes. overall sales? Like what percentage of it is men's athletic footwear versus women's in terms of the It's about 50% market? men, 35% women, and 15% kids. Okay. So, I mean, that's quite a delta. That could be, like you're saying, billions of dollars in new revenue. There's a, there's a huge opportunity there to, uh, to grow the women's piece of the business. I agree with what your friend said about selling men more shoes, but the bigger opportunity is on the women's side. And that's why you hear so many of the brands talking about how do we grow our women's business now. Well, this is interesting because, you know, as the stuff that we cover a lot in New Street is about more often than not, like the sneakerhead collectors, you know, like the whole sort of the like latest Travis Scott, latest Yeezys. Now, I'd love to know at a, at a big picture level, how does that move the needle for brands? Is it more like sort of brand marketing where it's like, oh, just because people are talking about the new Travis Scott's, that is just free earned media for Nike. But when you're selling like 100 pairs of shoes, it doesn't move the needle. What function does that have? Is it more just the flashiness or does it actually impact the bottom line? It does not impact the bottom line that much, in my opinion. I think that, but it, but it does bring eyeballs and it brings clicks and likes and <clears throat> you know, the marketing people, I think, really like to know, to, to measure those things. I've often sarcastically said, you know, put all those likes in a basket and take them down to your bank in the morning and see what they'll give you for. I think there's far too much emphasis on on collaborations and yeah. and uh, and limited edition shoes. With a certain subset of the business, they do continue to drive sales. But but it's, it's, it's less than 10% of the business, in my opinion. And I think if you asked most people on the street about tra- who is Travis Scott, they couldn't tell you. Uh, even if you asked who was Yeezy, many people couldn't tell you. And if they could tell you that many of them wouldn't know that he had anything to do with shoes. You know, Jordan is the icon of the business and Jordan sales is equal to much greater than all of the other collaborations put together and doubled. So there'll never be another Jordan and, and uh, in terms of merchandise sales, everybody else pales by comparison. I mean, what you just said, I get it, but I'm just trying to think if there's any ways for that to not be the case because Air, Air Jordan was a first of the time Hail Mary from Nike to do like an actual shoe with an athlete, not just have them sign their name on it as an endorsement. And since then, Air Jordan has become such a strong part of the culture. I mean, the closest person I could think of would be Kanye West when it comes to his impact on the culture. Now, is there, is, do you see a world where Kanye West's Yeezy brand can in any way be comparable to Air Jordan or is it not at all? possible. I don't think it's possible. I, let, let, let's sort of break this down. You got yeah. Jordan 35 years to get where, he, where it is today. Okay. It's, it's been, I don't know, longer than 35 months, but not much longer than 35 months for Kanye West. So you, you, you have to put things into perspective. And, and look at the, the, the Jordan business was an interesting one. It, yes, the first shoe sold out. But it wasn't a lot of pairs. Relatively, today, it was certainly not a lot of pairs. Back then, it was a decent amount of pairs. And, and then the Jordan phenomenon continued, but it was not a big deal. There were, there were collectors, there were hardcore fans who were collecting and trading shoes, but it wasn't a really big deal. And Jordan started to run out of gas around uh, probably the last great shoe was probably 14 that really captured the imagination. And in the early 2000s, when Jordan was started to be on somewhat on the wane, the, the people who were running the Jordan brand at the time said, we're going to do something different. We're going to bring back retro shoes. Nobody ever talked about retro shoes. They had a little bit of experience with Air Force One where they, they had tried to phase that out and some dealers came to them and said, no, put it back in. And they revived it. But still wasn't there wasn't a retro trend going on then. 
And so the, the guy who was heading up sales for Jordan at the time went to the head of Foot Locker and said, uh, we're going to bring back the, the one, basically, which people didn't call the one back in the day, but now it's called the one. The guy from Foot Locker said, great, we'll take 25,000 pairs. And the guy said, no, we're only going to make 25,000 pairs and we're going to give you 5,000. And of course, Foot Locker went ballistic over that, but that's what ended up happening. And so now you got a, a release of a shoe and it comes out and it's gone in a day. And everybody starts to go nuts that it's gone in the day. And so then there was all this black market and there were store managers selling the stuff out the back door. And this really began the modern era of Jordan, which is only 20 years old at this point. Go ahead. Was that the 14s you said was the first time they kind of took this like limited supply strategy? No, no, no. L later than that. It was just, this is okay. 2002, maybe three. Okay. Um, when, and so this was, out, they were still releasing a Jordan every year as they continue to do. But they, they came and said, we're going to bring back the first shoe and offer it yeah. on a limited quantity. So when they brought this shoe back, it blew out and, and all of a sudden there was an industry here. And But Jordan was very smart. If you go back and look at, say, Reebok and the original S. Carter shoe, the Jay-Z shoe, right? So yeah. they made that shoe the, for the first time and they made 5,000 pairs of that shoe. And I was in the downtown locker room, sorry, Sneaker Villa on North Broad Street in Philadelphia the day that shoe introduced. And there were kids on the sidewalk to buy the shoe and it blew out, sold out by lunchtime. So they sold 5,000 pairs. So Reebok said, terrific. We sold 5,000 pairs. Next time, let's make 50,000 pairs. And that shoe sold out. Okay. And then they said, let's make half a million pairs. And the shoes ended up at TJ Maxx because yeah. there was so much more supply than the consumer wanted and nobody, and so they couldn't sell them all. What you're saying sounds the sort of beginnings of a distribution strategy that's about like limiting supply. And I would imagine, I, I thought, and you'd, you'd, I'd love to know if you know the answer to this, that the sort of like limited drop origins, did that come from streetwear? Because I would imagine like, I don't know, Supreme maybe were the people that pioneered no, no, that? No, this, this predated, so this predated Supreme. Although Supreme was okay. a probably about the same time. You know, I think this idea of limited shoes and holding back was sort of percolating out there, but it certainly wasn't the industry that it is today. I guess I want to tell you that I was in, I was in the anti-mall in, in South, South Bristol, the Gold Coast of California, and uh, there was a shoe there, a store, I think the shoe store is still in existence and they were doing a, a limited edition nike laser crafted shoe there were kids who were sleeping outside the store to be there for the first first in line for that and i was walking around with my my friend who developed them all and and like what's going on here and, and and that was the first time i saw it and then i was at just happened to be in manhattan doing a retail crawl and i walked up lafayette street and supreme was doing the original pigeon uh, dunk yeah uh, and there were 150 kids in line, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Th this was all about the same time, sort of early, mid-2000s, when all of these things were happening, and they began to feed on each other. Uh, so where was the original idea? I'm not sure I can tell you, but, but they were all very small in terms of numbers in the beginning. That was that was one of the keys. And then, then Jordan would increase the quantities maybe 10% every year. No more. And that kept the kids coming back on Saturday morning to uh, to be there for those drops. Originally, the drops were on Wednesday, which is interesting because Wednesday was the slowest day of the week for the, for the sneaker stores. And so they were looking for something to stimulate the business on Wednesday. They didn't need more business on Saturday. They were fine there. They wanted more business on Wednesday. But what happened was kids were were cutting school to try to grab a shoe. And so there was pressure on the, on everybody to move it. So that, that was when drops moved to Saturday instead of uh, Wednesdays. It's crazy that now it seems like the idea of a drop just seems boilerplate. And it's just like, it's like, it's just the strategy. I mean, I think also to 
how crazy things have gotten where the Travis Scott PlayStation dunks last year, how he only raffled off like, what was it, five or 10 or something like that. And then obviously the, the Travis Scott fragment Air Jordans, the distribution of how you actually get shoes out has changed so much. It's kind of crazy to think about. And it's not that, it's not been that long. Like you were talking about the mid 2000s, which I guess was just, you know, 15-ish years ago. Exactly. And yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the internet changed everything, right? And that's not, not just sneaker sales, but everything. And uh, people were, as I said, people were trading. Most of it was done locally, somebody you knew, and you swapped a pair of shoes, and it was no big deal. It was, not a, it was a cottage industry at that point. When eBay came along, people began to now have a vehicle to, to make those trades. But there were a lot of shenanigans early on, and, you know, the mm. shoes weren't they were worn, they weren't as advertised, and there really was no mechanism of eBay to authenticate or even to resolve customer conflict. It was sort of buyer beware kind of a story. I actually started talking to Josh Luber, who started StockX, and yep. he, before StockX, he had a company called Campless. And the idea was that he was going to, using algorithms and reading the sales prices on eBay, he was going to tell people what was a fair price for a shoe, much like what you see for CarMax and TrueCar and Carvana today, and, and telling you what's a fair price for a used car. He and I, he, he, he was working full-time in another job while he was doing this, and he reached out to me three or four times. We had great conversations about it, and he said, I'm thinking about starting up a store. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Uh, and so StockX, right? And uh, yeah. and I'm not taking credit for it. I'm just, I was sort of, uh, I was there when, when some things happened. But, but And the key, the key really to all of these platforms is authentication and ease of transaction. And the seller is, is often paid before the shoe is even delivered to the consumer. And the consumer has a great deal of confidence that it's going to be what he saw it to be. The downside, the dark side of all of that is that it really introduced a whole nother layer of people that I call the flippers, who are using bots and other nefarious ways of getting in front in line and grabbing up a bunch of shoes and then reselling them at a higher price to the real fans who want them. And, and, and this is a problem that the brands have got to figure out. And, and yeah. I, I have a feeling we're going to see apps like Sneakers become more important to help make these uh, the, these transactions better for the, the real fan who really yeah. wants the shoe is not, and not just trying to profiteer. For people that don't know, the Nike sneakers app, the Adidas confirmed app, are like the brand's action mobile apps that you use to enter a raffle and win a shoe, which is not overpriced, but just at, at MSRP. It wouldn't surprise me that the, that the brands moved to some sort of imitation system where you're, you're, you're in Sneakers app and you got high points because you bought a lot of other shoes yeah. from them. And they send you an email saying, here is your special code, one-time use. You have two hours to use it. If you don't use it within two hours, you lose, you lose your right to, to buy a pair of shoes. And they send it out. And so the launches now are not one day. They might go on over a month. Right, yeah. because they're they're sequencing people in very orderly. The bots can't play there. I don't think. I'm not. A, I'm certainly not a bot expert by any means. But I don't see how the bots play there and 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 win. So it w it wouldn't surprise me if we go to some sort of system like that, and it will it will tamp down the hype a little bit of that one day excitement. Shoes were sold out in two hours. Story. The reason, the real reason that the brands have put these apps together is they want to get closer to their best customers. They want to know what their best customers buy. They want to know what, what they want. 
They want to serve them better. And all of the things I just described do do that exactly. It's like their CRM strategy, right? To have sneakers app confirmed. Well, I think, I mean, here's and here's another way to start to beat the bots, which is to put more pairs in the marketplace. And, you yeah. know, we yeah. continue to see this. The uh, the Yeezys that released over the weekend are, are reselling for 250 bucks and they cost 220 yeah. So nobody's making money. The flippers sure as heck aren't making any money. Um, it's, it, the transaction fees alone eat up whatever profit they might get on this thing. Yeah. So that's one way to have them lose interest. But at the same time, you want the hype to stay high with your, with your real customers. So the, the, it's a very, very delicate balance that has to go on here. And we I think of how many shoes are available on these resale platforms that are selling for less than suggested retail price. I even know that I've gotten emails from retailers saying this shoe is still available and I look and I see it's got sizes I can put it in my cart and I'm going to the resale platforms and there's and people are asking for 50 bucks more than wholesale I'm like why would anybody do that (laughs) again I I think increased increased supply will will be another way to sort of beat the bots and I one other tangent to this you're talking about tangents here is that we've seen a lot of these platforms really move to selling other things Watches, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. handbags, clothes. I think they recognize that the gravy train isn't going to go on forever here with sneakers. And yeah. and by the way, the the model has complete application to anything that is collectible and needs to be authenticated. So you could you could do postage stamps, you could do you know coins if you wanted to, and and there some of them are even starting to do trading cards now. Um, and so oh, yeah. all of that Stock is X. is a part of is a part of how the model can be extended. That's a trend that we are obviously very very closely following, like just collectibles more broadly that go beyond sneakers. Now, I'm interested, actually, I'm always thinking about, like, what are the opportunities for other brands, too? Do you, do you think there's a role for competitor brands? What do you see in the landscape for, like, the other brands that aren't Nike or Adidas and what opportunities they have to get more market share? I'll give you a little context. In the United States, there's great disparity between Nike and everybody else. Outside of the United States, that disparity does not exist to the extent that it does here. In most countries in the United States, outside of the United States, Nike and Adidas are relatively in parity in terms of market share. They both have, oh, 20-odd percent, 20, 25 percent in, in most countries. So it's only here where, the, where Nike has such a dominant share. To me, that gives small brands an opportunity in the U.S. to chip away at that. While Nike won't bleed to death from a losing 50 basis points in share, another brand could thrive with 50 basis points in share. And so we've seen we've seen some brands really make a, a run here. In particular, I, uh, during the pandemic, Hoka Oneone and, and On both acted as if there was no pandemic at all. They just continued on the rocket ship that they're on, and they've continued that since then. Both Hoka and On will be a billion dollar brand at some point in the very near future. Okay. And so Nike is a you know $38 billion brand. So there's a, there's a little bit of a gap there, but still opportunity for a brand to grow. I'm interested to get your thoughts on maybe also the demographics here about, I know, for example, StockX, one of their fastest growing regions is China, well, Asia, but China specifically. I know there's like StockX equivalents in China as well. When I look at the fashion industry in China, I know that a lot of these like Western luxury brands are still obviously super successful there. But there's also local brands that are becoming more successful as time goes on, more sort of like pride in national Chinese fashion brands. When I think about like a Li Ning or other Chinese footwear brands, do you see them maybe eating into the market share of like 
Nike's footprint in China or other brands like that are Western footwear brands in China? Sure. Well, I, I think in particular in China, the, the, if the Chinese kid starts to turn away from Western brands and there's, there's been a boycott of, of Western brands yeah. because of the stand on the, on the Muslim uh, cotton situation. And if that continues, yeah, those brands, could, those brands could grow significantly. In fact, they are right now. Nike and Adidas last report were both negative in China and Lening and Anta and 361 and P all uh, all took share in China. We don't measure China, so I don't have any real hard numbers to share with you. I'm just looking at public uh, declarations that I've seen. But yeah, those those brands are taking share there. Interestingly, none of them have any business here. You know, you mentioned you mentioned lending signing some of the uh, some of the NBA players. They're doing that for credibility with the Chinese kid. Uh, they want to be able to say to the Chinese kid, "We have NBA players wearing our shoes," uh, as opposed to you, you know, trying to get sales here. That all of them have tried to make a run at the U.S. market, and, and they, they did not make it happen. But that doesn't mean they won't in the future. And China, look, China is going to be the biggest sneaker market in the world soon. Yeah. There are four times more people there in China than there are here. <laughs> so, just the law of numbers would tell you that as the Chinese economy continues to, to thrive, and, and so forth, China China will be a larger market than than here. Just as a, an aside or a little bit of a nuance. We were talking about the basketball business not being very good here. The basketball business in China is terrific. Performance basketball as fashion, not retro basketball. Now I'm talking about perform LeBron, KD, uh, Kyrie yeah. kinds of footwear. Yeah. That's working in China. It's not working here at all. Is that because the taste of the Chinese market versus the Western market? Well, I think here fashion has much more of an impact on what styles are selling than than yeah. it does there. There, I think kids are really buying basketball shoes to play basketball in, and right. so th- th- that's why it's still winning for them in China. But if that kid ever figures out that China, the basketball shoes are out of fashion here, uh, it would be interesting to see what that did to the business. Another area of the footwear industry I'm really interested to get your thoughts on is sustainability, I guess, both from a perspective of manufacturing and just like new designs i guess there's two nuances one, one is supply chain other is materials from a supply chain perspective some vietnamese factories were shut down because of covid and so nike's supply was impacted so that's one part of maybe a sustainable supply chain but also the second part all birds has talked about sustainability is like their entire brand and then you have nike air carbon being to reduce the carbon footprint you think about like 3d printed sne- uh, sneakers and stuff like what what's your take on the overall moves towards sustainability. So our research, our consumer research shows that the consumer is very concerned about sustainability and they are willing to pay somewhat more, not a lot, but somewhat more for sustainable shoes. Also, they tell us they don't know most of the time when they're buying a pair of shoes what the st- sustainability story is. There, There is an inclination out there. The consumer needs to be better educated and they say they'll spend more money. We'll see. People have said they'll spend more money on lots of things and then they, when it comes down to it, they don't do that. But So sustainability, a very important story from a consumer point of view. On the manufacturing side, it's really, really challenging. It's not, mm. a, there is not a simple fix that simply move production from this country to that country or, or do this or do that. I've encouraged the brands to make sure that they tell their story about sustainability to the consumer, that they own up, that they're not perfect, and they probably never will be perfect, but they're working at it every single day. And when they make a leap, like carbon, like 4D future, mm-hmm. that they're telling, or all birds, you're telling that story to the community so that they know that, that it's going on. But gee, there's so many parts of it. I mean, for, for instance, uh, the 
outsole of the shoe typically is a material that really isn't is not recyclable in, in the true sense of the word. The chemicals that are used to adhere the parts of the shoe to each other sometimes are very bad, and people are figuring out that. You see um, Adidas uh, Adidas Prime Knit or Nike Fly Knit, where the upper is knitted as opposed to cut in pieces and glued together or sewn together. That that reduces waste, so that product is more sustainable. You do all this great work in manufacturing in China, and then you put it on a boat for two or three months, spewing carbon fuel uh, into, into the air. And it's like, well, that blew that deal. And, and then you put it in a box with all this tissue paper and forms and everything else that you end up throwing away. And, have, and maybe it gets recycled, maybe it doesn't. I'm not downplaying the importance of sustainability. I think it's very important, but it's really hard. Nobody's going to be perfect for forever, frankly. There's always going to be issues. And all of that said, every brand I talk to is working really, really hard yeah. on this. The, the intention is there. The effort is there. The result is not yet. I, I, want, I want to say this is a good segue, but NFTs as another sort of hot topic that is partially sustainability is part of it, or at least like scalability is something when you think about with NFTs. The sneaker NFT idea and space is still very young like we've seen the company that actually a company that i interviewed in a, an earlier episode artifact they create digital nft fashion they did a collab with jeff staple from the pigeon dunk to create like virtual nfts that are like sneakers but if you buy one you get a physical sneaker as well they've done similar collabs with a bunch of artists i saw dolce and gabbana launched a bunch of nfts with pj tucker for this limited line it's a hot topic and to your point earlier I don't have faith in every single NFT project. I do believe in the technology, broadly speaking. I'd love to just get your take on what you're seeing work well, not so well, your thoughts on NFTs when it comes to footwear. Well, again, this is this is really about limited edition products. And so they're commercially not important. J- just to try to put that into perspective, last year, Nike made 400 million pairs of shoes. Adidas made 400 million pairs of shoes. So 5,000 pairs on an NFT is a, a drop in the ocean, right? The idea that what drives the value here is scarcity. So yeah. if you make a lot of them, there's no value. And and that's why, so the, the, that balance of, of scarcity drives high prices is is a great theory. And it works for little people, a small, small retailer, small individuals, but big picture, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm gonna take this down to the lowest common denominator. The gift with purchase has always been a story, right? So you buy something, you get something for nothing. This is just another version of that. But I, I, as I said earlier, I do not have a lot of faith in the NFT market. I think uh, if, you're, if you're the first guy in, you made a lot of money. If you're the last guy in, you lost a lot of money. So it's like any Ponzi scheme. Totally, totally get it. To summarize, I mean, we've talked about a lot of different things in the, the sneaker industry, footwear. I think we covered most major topics there. Is there, is there anything you think people aren't talking about enough when it comes to the most consequential things happening in footwear? Well, I think, again, I mentioned the women's piece of it, and I'm very passionate about this. Uh, I, you know, I've said for 20 years that it's the industry's greatest failure and its greatest opportunity. And, and so I can't talk enough about how, uh, how I think the, the getting after products that are really made specifically her, for her that answer a need for her are really, really important deal. I think the, f- the near-term future for the sneaker business is very, very good. I think we're going to see more and more people wearing athletic footwear as streetwear. Uh, the athleisure trend is not gone because of pandemic. If anything, it's probably stronger. I don't think they're going to get us back wearing hard, stiff shoes and neckties and, and suits again, uh, ever. We may wear them for some special occasion because for a fun thing, but it's not the way we're going to choose to dress every day. So I think the athletic side of the business remains really good. So I, all in, I think we're, we're in a good place. Very encouraging words here. Matt, I think we're going to wrap up in a second here. But before we do, where, where can people find you? Is, is Twitter the best place? NPD group? 
where where could people most easily? Yeah, so my well, my about? blogs are all on the NPD group uh, website. Yeah. So if you want to read my blogs, they're there. It's uh, NPD Matt Powell on Twitter, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. If you want to link, happy to to chat with you folks on all different levels. So thank you. And any last message you'd like to leave the audience, just about sneakers and anything? Um, well, no, I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, again, I think this is, this remains the one the one cool thing about this job is that if, if I'm not tired of it after doing it for 21 years because it keeps Amazing. changing every day. It's different. And if you go to my if you go to my Twitter bio, first thing that it says is student of retail. Uh, at 70 years old, 50 almost 50 years in the business, I can tell you that I'm still a student and and still learning something every day. And that that makes this job a very cool one. Well, hey, you've been a teacher to everybody listening to this, myself included. So I really appreciate it. And to be your student for the last hour, I feel like I've learned quite a lot. So really appreciate taking the time. Thank you, Matt. Glad to do it. Thank you for listening to New Street X. You can find more information from Matt in the show notes, and you can find more about New Street on newstreet.com.